Welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James, and each week I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. However, this week I'm trying something different. A few weeks back, I posted on LinkedIn and Twitter asking for questions you'd like me to answer, and I was genuinely blown away by the response. There are plenty of interesting, difficult, and probing questions, so on this episode, I hope to do those questions justice. I'm thankful I didn't just get questions. I also got a volunteer, Adam Harwood, who made the time to come and ask me these questions to make it more of a conversation than a list. Now, without further ado, let's get into it. Okay, uh, David, the first section is about you. And our first question in this episode comes from Nick Shackleton-Jones with what's the most inspiring learning project you have seen and what did you learn from it? So the most inspiring learning project I've seen I didn't run, but I did kind of have oversight of it. It was at Disney, and I've referenced it quite a lot in other podcasts and in some writing. And it was called the Disney Digital Lab. It was run out of the Italian offices of Disney. This was when I was Director of Learning Talent for Europe, Middle East and Africa. So um, there were local teams who worked on local projects. It was actually run by a very talented team in HR and learning and development. I'll name check them. It was Valentina Gramolini and Silvia Ferrari. And the problem that they were looking to solve, because it was a real business problem, is that there was a flourishing digital business, a publishing business in Italy, but they needed to transition to digital, um, except that there was a low proliferation of devices and therefore awareness and capability of digital within that office. And so to make that transformation happen with very little churn in the Italian office, so there was, I think the average tenure um, at that time was around 11 years in Italy. So we had to develop the, the, the people to actually work differently. So Inst- I mean, we, we were terribly hamstrung by uh, technology at the time with our LMS and e-learning. So it was all done physically. It was all done face-to-face, but they run kind of mini uh, accelerated apprenticeships. They got seeds of expertise that already resided within the organisation. They got expertise from outside to help, first of all, raise awareness of digital and its potential capabilities. Um this was, you know, they did all sorts of things by creating a physical lab where they brought in uh, devices that, 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 again, there was a low proliferation of, and they worked on everybody's general level of awareness. So they expected more than, than perhaps they knew. And the next step was they worked on the capability. So helping people to redefine their own jobs based on different outcomes. It was incredibly manual, but it was incredibly successful. And what I liked about that, and the reason that it was so inspiring to me, is that it solved a real problem. Now, one of the first things that we recognised was that you can't you can't do this by running training programmes. And that's why it was chosen, that it was more like mini accelerated apprenticeships that were designed to, to facilitate change within the organisation rather than a learning programme. And that, for me, set the benchmark for everything else that I, I, I speak about, think about, talk about and design and offer now to the learning and development market. Excellent. That's a great example. And... Um... A similar question, uh, but on the flip side of that, this is from Joe Cook, mm. and she asked, what was the most disastrous project and what did you learn from it? Now, when I saw this come in <laughs> on social media, I squirmed and I, th- I think I, th- I felt myself um, uh, go red blush uh, to actually I think blush. you're going red right now, by the way. <laughs> um, 
And this was because I've made a lot of mistakes, which I now look back on in hindsight. But at the time, it was also part of learning the craft as, as a trainer, because most of the mistakes that I made were in the design and delivery of training that made no difference. Now, it didn't cost just money, but it also cost precious time, not just my time, but but time of, of um, the people who were attending. And of course, it, it cost credibility uh, and all sorts of other intangibles, I'm sure. I think back to a couple of examples. There was a customer service training that I developed for um, frontline telephone staff that I think made absolutely no difference. I just pulled content that I'd already experienced on a training course and delivered it. And whilst they were very kind, I don't think that it made any difference. But the one that I'm choosing, I was selecting from my top 20 of mistakes, is some performance management training I delivered at, uh, at the, the part of Lehman Brothers I worked at in the mid-2000s. Again, I kind of pulled it together from a needs analysis and from content I delivered before. I stood it up in front of the first course and to put it mildly, I was crucified. Board, I mean, there was borderline heckling. I, I was delivering what you'd expect. It was about coaching, development-focused conversations with questioning techniques, but the people just didn't want to know. Um, Sounds like a David James stand-up. <laughs> I mean, that, I mean that, that was what, what was experienced, I'm sure, on the other side. But at the front of the room, it was, yeah. it was mortifying. And what did I learn? Uh, well, first of all, I learned what works and works in inverted commas for one organization doesn't necessarily work elsewhere. And I also lost faith in delivery as a useful means of development, something that had got me plaudits in a previous role that looking back just just sunk. So I think that's that's a point when I, I think I started to think more systemically about problems and uh, potential solutions. Nice. And interestingly enough, I think that was where I had a moment of, I suppose, awakening that I needed to change delivery, um, and that was performance management. So maybe everyone has that performance management moment. But <laughs> I would say that, like, if that is your your worst, then I'm sure that like that's not so bad. It's not too bad. <laughs> um, our next question, still in the about me section, mm -hmm. uh, from Jose Vala Velasquez. Velasquez. Yes. Apologies if that name was incorrect. Um, and it's about your time at Disney. Uh, what was your greatest source of frustration and how did you deal with it? Right. So the Disney experience was an incredible one, if, uh, if I'm absolutely honest. Um, the, the, the challenges and the um, were, were one side of it, but the inspiration was, uh, was on the other. All except the learning technology. Both the LMS and the e-learning were absolutely dreadful. Um, so I joined in 2006, left in 2014. It was the same learning management system, a lot of the same uh, uninspiring content. The LMS had language on there such as business objects. There was buttons that said request a schedule. Like if for, for you to attend program, you actually needed a training course to understand how to drive this LMS. And by the time you got into the content, it wasn't worth your effort in the first place. Yeah. It really was dreadful. So I spent eight years at Disney either trying to drive traffic towards it to help to, to justify the company's uh, investment in that tool, or we looked for ways to try to reduce the pain of the end user. We did that either by uh, creating, I wrote about this on LinkedIn very recently, a SharePoint fascia yeah. that, that helped drive people more directly towards the content. Again, trying to take the pain away. But a lot of the time, 
I tried not to use it. My yeah. example before about you know digital um, Disney Digital Lab or or anything else, we we chose not to use the technology. And it wasn't till after I left Disney that I realised that there was hope and that we should expect more from uh, from learning technology. But that was definitely my greatest source of frustration. I suppose the yardstick of that is if you didn't want to use it, then how can you expect your users to use it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. A final question in the About Me section, David. It's from Adam Meek. And he asked, if you could only listen to one person in learning, who would it be? Big question. Yeah, it's a tough, tough question. And I've kind of answered it and then found a way not to. Um, I would say that if I was only going to listen to one person, it would be Tracy Waters at Sky. I think that um, everybody's got the opportunity to understand what what Tracy's views are on stuff and her progress because she's been so generous with sharing this on Medium in her and her team's uh, Agile in Learning series and also the the, the Fosway um, report that, uh, that that she published with her team as well. The reason I want to go around this is that I don't just want to listen to people. I want to chat with people. Now, you and I have great conversations that are grounded in what you're trying to achieve and in hearing what you're going through and hearing your ideas. Those ideas percolate with me and I'm able to to hopefully suggest things that, yeah. that help. But I have those conversations with a lot of people. So I value conversations that are grounded in the practical realities of organisational life much more than I like isolated learning solutions conversations yep. because as soon as it's like the the old Mike Tyson, I'm sure we, he probably didn't even say it, <laughs> you know, everybody has a plan or everybody has a solution until you get punched in the face. And yeah. I think that, that that works with learning and development as well, that you might have the best plan or less, best suite of solutions, but as soon as it lands in the organisations, that's when the gritty reality yeah, strikes. And so, absolutely. so yeah, so those, those two parts, I definitely recommend that people look out for and search for, for Tracy and her team's work on, uh, on Medium, or as I said, it's called Agiling Learning, um, but don't discount the conversations. No, absolutely. And that's really refreshing that you're like, you know, that person is someone who's doing doing the do and, you know, in the organisation that, you know, that you, that you believe you get a lot of inspiration from, from that perspective. Mm. So, okay. So we're moving on to our next section now, who we are and what we are for. Uh, so our first question, well, it's a double barrel question from Rob Moores and Michelle Parry Slater. Um, it's around uh, L&D and renaming it. Mm -hmm. So the question is, is it time to rename L&D to L&P? learning and performance, or why not development and performance? David, over to you. Um, look, there's, there's, there are going to be just as many people interested in this as toes are curling. I know that, <laughs> that people like Charlie Neen, who's, uh, who I've had uh, an exchange with on, uh, on LinkedIn, doesn't like this kind of navel-gazing. Um, but I, th I do think it's an important point because, personally, I don't like the learning moniker because I think it focuses us on the wrong things. We should be focusing on the goal rather than the means. So, so when, when people are learning in the context of their work, they're trying to do something in service of their goals, which might be around immediate performance, it might be around tasks, it might be around their prospects. But the fact that they're learning is kind of the middle bit. So I'm much more drawn towards performance and capability because I think it speaks to, to both ends of the, uh, of the spectrum. The performance part, which is around the individual, it's the job that needs to be done and to the extent that results are delivered. And then it's capability, which is important for the organisation. So, so I, I kind of like that frame. Um, but, you know, I've got no problem with um, people development 
as a as a name for it either. But I do think we do we we need to to lose the learning part. Yep. I suppose it's worrying if you have a name like performance capability, but they all do the same stuff anyway. Mm. So it's how much importance you put on it is is interesting because there's a question that follows on from that not so much about the department, but the role of learning professionals and what their terms should be. Mm. And it came from, comes from David Patterson, who asked, do learning professionals need to become learning engineers or learning producers? These are new hot terms being used. So it'd be interesting to see your views on this, David. So building on what I said before, I don't like the learning part. I think that we shouldn't be trying to uh, if we just put learning in the bin, I think we'd stop confusing ourselves and others because we neither we don't produce learning. The learning part is an internal process in service of a particular goal. Now, I like what Andrew Jacobs has to say on this. He's he's written and talks um, uh, greatly around uh, moving from shopkeepers to engineers. And so, if we think like engineers, we think of those systems. Uh, but rather than trying to engage people in something that inspires the learning, we are looking at their system and finding out what's not working in the context of their work. So I'm, I do like the term engineers, but engineers of what? Now, we could yep. go back and if we're, if we're landing on the performance element, then we might want to call ourselves performance engineers, but maybe we don't need the, the performance part of it. Maybe we just need to think like engineers and think of systems and how they're broken and how they should be working to do to to produce results like it excellent and this is uh follows on from that uh but it's considering lnd completely removed from the organization the not demise even, yeah the demise <laughs> their, their names not just been removed they've been actually removed from the whole organization and this comes from danny seals and craig taylor who are similar questions if we remove lnd from the business would the business survive or would it in fact thrive uh, likewise, if LND went up in smoke tomorrow, would anyone notice or care? Right. I'm I'm an optimist as far as we're concerned. Um, and I think very quickly a shadow learning and development department would be created if it was removed or, or if it went up in smoke. But when it does first show its head, I think it would be like primitive life on earth. Just bear with me for a moment. It, <laughs> it would be like a single cell version of learning and development and it would be around administration of course attendance. And it doesn't matter what course a lot of the time. I've seen this. I've, I've been for interviews um, and spoken with learning and development departments who are now ready for the, for the next step of bringing someone in to really own learning. And then when you find out what they've done, you'll say, oh, we've, we've just got um, uh, a deal with a training course provider. Um, I, I interviewed for a role many years ago where they sent people to the US to a very prestigious learning um, organization but they didn't really know what for it was just the prestige and of course there might be some access to linkedin learning but yeah. but there is there is always some kind of provision so it's like so it's kind of if we removed it and it grew again it would be like going back to the very evolution of life on earth and then starting from scratch again but there is real need for learning and development as far as i'm concerned well beyond this but it needs a vision a vision that's better than now for employees and the organisation. It needs leadership to take people from their current perception of what they think is possible with learning and development, and then it needs activation. So, as I said before, I am optimistic about our value and our role, but it's too often not evolved far enough in the maturity of the function in any given organisation. 
Okay, so LND is not going to explode anytime soon. Then, if it does, it will it will it will grow, grow again. But it's but it's it's almost like the the you know the grass that grows beneath the cracks in the patio. Yeah, you know, it's not really going to go anywhere. It's just it's just going to be this this funny little annoyance yep. until it's really dealt with, and maybe you pull the patio up and then you returf. Nice, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Okay. Um, this next question is from Margaret Burnside, um, and she's asked, is there a big gap between those advocating a more modern performance-focused development approach and traditional L&D teams? Um, I think there is. Um, I, I think that there is a lot of conversation. I think that some of the problem in learning and development is that we take new terms and then look at old practice and rebrand. And I think that, that not everybody's talking about the same thing. But if I can own what I talk about... Um, I think it's the evolution I mentioned before. If we continue to build L&D from the ground up, then we're never too far away from its genesis. So the administration, the courses, the the basic online learning provision, and then success measured in terms of attendance, completion and satisfaction and the like. But being performance focused is a future state that doesn't resemble our ancestors. (laughs) We could go and use that genesis thing again. We talk about business when we're we're performance focused, about what people are really trying to do, about what's getting in the way and about the results they're trying to get and what we need to do all together, them and us, in order to equip them to perform and then get the results. But if we can imagine all people transitioning into and through our organisations, being guiding and supporting when and how they need it, in order to help them get their right things done and achieve their results more efficiently than it may happen now, then that's what I think we're talking about. The gap is big because I think that these two worlds start from very different places, but the gap isn't insurmountable. The thing I found requires the most work is L&D people unrestricting their thinking about what we should be doing in service of people, what they're trying to do, when they're trying to do it, and their results rather than a programmatic or product-focused um, uh, traditional solution. So a question that you asked, David, like usually at the end of your podcast about advice you would give to L&D people with how they get started or what should they take away is if someone was listening to that answer, what should be like the first step in that case to move in that direction, do you think? Right, I think reimagine. Okay. I'd say step out of the learning and development world, put down all the books, yep. um, put to aside, put aside everything you thought before, and then go and speak with some people just just over lunch. Don't talk to them about learning or training. Say to them, when when you came into the organisation, what were you trying to do, yep. and what was getting in the way? Have a talk then and say, right, if I had unlimited budget, how would we best serve this? <laughs> Right. Yep. Because when you're talking to real people about their real problems and then you uncap uncap it in terms of what the solution might be, I think you're going to get real not just innovation, but I think you're going to get more creative solutions to their real problems. Yep. I always say that, you know, if we look to to Amazon, if we look at Spotify, they're not taking an old model and then just just polishing it up for a new generation they're going back to the very reason people want to engage in the first place why people listen to music or want access to all that music and why people are shopping in inverted commas they're going back to the very reason that people are engaging in the first place and i think that that's what we need to do in learning and development like it all right following on from that grant simmons why do we do such a poor job at developing lnd professionals shouldn't we have the best learning experience what could we do to solve this? 
Hmm. I can't speak for everybody uh, on this one um, because I know that there are awarding bodies, and I know that that there is there are people's jobs on developing L and D professionals. But if I can refer again back to to previous answers, I think it's because we grow learning and development professionals from the bottom up, starting the evolution process from scratch, time and time again. We evolve trainers to instructional designers to technology implementers to program managers. You know, you can see it. it's a it's a steady progression, but it's almost like starting from the beginning of time every single time. Yeah. So we don't talk about the the impact beyond the classroom or the LMS, but I think it starts with our vision. What's the ideal look like? What does it feel like? And what does it actually deliver? I think we end up by trying to make primitive tools better rather than thinking big. And what I mean by primitive tools is when we grow trainers in the classroom, we always look and think, how do we make that learning better? How do I become a better facilitator? And so it's all these, it's, it's nano. It really is. I think we need to, to think big, go back to, to what I mentioned before, as in try to understand what people are really trying to do yep. and solve their problems in the context of their work rather than our problems in the context of learning. I like that. And this screams to me a David James masterclass series. <laughs> there you go. All right. Um, next question. Damien Muck. McCallanan. McCallanan. Um, again, apologies if that name is incorrect. Uh, should employee L&D be voluntary? Uh, I think it should be voluntary. But if people aren't engaging, I think it's up to L&D to explore why that is. So we should flip the focus from employees not engaging voluntarily to what do they really need? I think people don't always engage voluntarily because it's not what they need when they need it in a format that's most useful in service of their primary goals. So I think that we should look outwards. And I, I, I think of anything from e-learning to, yep. to face-to-face training. Again, I'm talking about the, the mechanisms and means rather than the, the end results. Yep. We try to find out what people are really trying to do. Then run small experiments to help them to do that when they're facing those unfamiliar situations and challenges for the very first time, because too often in learning and development, we do what we can when we can do it. And I think that that's all the wrong way around. We should look to disrupt our own practice by focus on the people that, that need our help when they need that help. Like it. All right. Perry Timms coming next. Quite a big question. This one, David, with many companies moving towards more autonomous and self-managed ways of working, how is L and D framed in such a world? No force compliance programs, but on-demand support for people to both solve issues and propel their aspirations for, non- for non-traditional career ventures. Sure, I love this question, and I'm not sure I fully understood it, but I, <laughs> I, kind, of, I kind of know where Perry's coming from uh, because of the conversations that we've had. Now, I think this works if we can get to people in time to support them. And I don't think it really matters if the organisation itself or the people are more autonomous or self-managed. Because too often, gaps between the learning or compliance training mean we need to enforce it, reinforce the learning, to to refresh, to remind, to nudge. But if L&D can offer what's needed when it's needed, then we can gain trust. Now, whether you're new to a, a, a self-managed or autonomous organisation or not, you're still going to need high direction at the outset. We all need high direction when we're in unfamiliar situations, organisations or, or teams. But courses on a schedule and e-learning in that context are not enough. We need to help people as they transition into and through our organisation, addressing real friction and embedding support into the tools they already use for work. 
surfing, for surfacing them, sorry, with nudges, as well as tools and insights aimed at affecting performance and not education. Harry, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Morton Max, um, have a question. When you have conversations with professionals who are in the midst of their transformational process in this realm, adapting their mindset, their strategy and actions in their daily operations, what do you tend to advise them to remember and or be careful about? A really good question. Mm -hmm. Contentiously, but I don't mean to be contentious or disrespectful. I say work on real problems. Now, it's challenging because if we don't look to solve real problems, then people won't engage and will make absolutely no difference. I'll give you some examples of things that aren't real problems. Not having online learning, not having an LMS, not having a course to cover all core skills. But real problems include most new starters aren't passing their probation the first time around. If that's happening in your organisation, then that needs addressing from all angles for employees, line managers and the organisation. If team members are 50% more likely to leave within 12 months of a newly promoted manager being appointed, that's a real problem. That's costing the organisation money and you could be losing talented people. If customer satisfaction is at an all-time low, it's a real problem. Now, those can be really quite obvious, although I, I would suggest that the first two may be obvious in some areas, but not being addressed. But if learning and development can understand the real problems that are being experienced and then work with the main actors in order to understand what the real problems are and what's getting in the way, I think that we're on the right path. But but um, I think it all comes down to understanding what real problems are and then understanding what problems created by learning and development or not challenged enough by learning and development are in comparison. And it sounds to me that to uncover those real problems, it's all about the data. Yeah, it, it is about data. We've got we've got access to so much data and it's business information a lot of the time or people analytics, which yeah. might give you business performance issues or critical points of failure in line with the correlations between people's endeavour and their actual results. And and that stuff all exists right now. But the, op the, the opposite to that is throwing mud at the wall, which is content and hoping enough of it sticks. Absolutely. Okay, uh, Ravi Shankar um, has asked, as learning becomes even more critical to organisation success and learning goes into workflow, will the standalone corporate L&D department die? Should it? No. Um, so I don't think it does die. It goes back to what I mentioned before. I yeah. think the role becomes even more important because it's less about administration and delivery and much more about that engineering element, trying to find out what's really broken or what really needs our attention. I always say to people, if we address friction rather than creating or transferring business needs into learning needs, we'll find our role is so much more focused and targeted and much more aimed at at real results that people care about rather than learning objectives that we have to almost convince people to care about at the beginning of a program. Absolutely. Okay, Michelle Perry Slater, when so much of what L&D does is in service of other parts of an organisation, often L&D is scuppered by systems and systematic change, which is not fully within our remit, borders on organisational development. How can we be successful in those circumstances? Again, I think this is a really good question and I... I think I've interpreted this, but if I've misunderstood, then uh, then apologies. But I, again, I think it goes back to solving real problems rather than solving L&D problems in a novel way. If we work with data and understand and then show the impact of addressing these real problems, then we speak the language of the business and then we gain buy-in. 
We don't need to spend a lot of money and we don't need to have flashy systems because, I mean, a lot of the time, if we have vast amount of money, it's usually wasted on ill-defined problems and solutions and then it's launched onto people or there's a long schedule of delivery. If we work bottom up, experiment to move the needle with minimum valuable solutions and then scale only what works, then we can move faster and more efficiently because we're more focused. So in short, I don't think we need the fanciest, flashiest tools. I don't think we need to convince um, parts of our organisation to do something fundamentally differently and buy into a new approach to learning and development. We may well be able to work with what we have and then buy a smart tool to automate it when that's cheaper than people running it manually. Okay, great. So traditional trainers in our field can feel under threat from the spread of other opportunities for development and performance support. What can they do to become more appreciative of development options in front of them? And that comes from Sook. Great. You know, I completely understand this, Sook, and I do empathise. I think training will always exist, but it won't be relied upon in areas where it's least effective for too much longer. That whole, can you run a, a course for me on X, when we really know deep down that it's not going to make a difference. I think I think the days are numbered there. So I think trainers need to evaluate where the value lies in their craft and look at marketing as an example from 15 years back where there was a traditional marketing approach and then it moved now, I mean, 15 years later, the vast majority of marketing is led by digital because you, you don't have to rely on people going to where you are marketing, you go to where people are and that's where I think the shift is. If I was going to be more specific about advice for, for trainers is that there are huge gaps in learning and development right now. There's this role of engineers, there's um, digital capability, there is in the reading and interpreting of data. There's all, there's all sorts. There are arrows pointing to where our profession is going. And I think that there is a deficit of capability in learning and development in order to deliver that stuff. Take a look at the Tools Maturity latest benchmark report, the transformation journey. Go to the page where it talks about the, the skills that are prevalent in learning and development and pick some of those that, that are less. And I tell you, that's data analytics, supporting performance and digital content development. Excellent. All right. So we're moving into uh, the next section, which is the future of learning and development. Rob Moores has asked, do you think the future is learning and development moving into more operation or the operation moving into L&D? Oh, that's a good question. So I see L&D being much more closely aligned to the operation and two things are going to happen to make that happen. So first of all, there's going to be the advancement of HR and people analytics, which will make performance data more understandable for business leaders who can see it on dashboards. They can see then critical points of failure and then ask questions of those either in HR or learning and development on what we can do in order to address those critical points of failure. The second thing is what I talked about earlier. And if this, if we want to disrupt this from internally, it's by creating a new vision for learning and development that everybody buys into based on outcomes rather than activities and products. So we can talk with the business about the business, about uh, their people, about performance and capability, productivity and results without translating that. So I think that they're, that we will align more closely to the operation because we will understand it better and we will be more deeply integrated. And we'll have a vested interest, a yeah. much more vested interest in actual results. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, and Chris Barker has asked, what will learning in the context of work look like in 20 years? That's a long way out. <laughs> 20 years. I, I think that, uh, that it's, it's always hard to look at, uh, at five or 10 years because you, know, you look 
10 years back and what iPhones, you know, we, yep. we all had iPhones. I know it was 2007 it was launched, but, you know, I think that uh, the, it was 2008, 2009 before it was really making a difference to us. So I think that, that 20 years is a long way out. But here's, here's my view. I think that, that work itself will be much more intuitive and support will be built into the tools we use for work. I think artificial intelligence will write the resources that we need and these will be surfaced in anticipation of their need, getting closer and closer and closer to the point of need. This will eliminate the administration of our roles and elevate the human capabilities. So if you think Minority Report without capturing and exploiting geniuses as slaves, I hope we will live and work in mixed realities like that that show us what needs to happen for basic or manual tasks and shares insights into the right things to do at the right times on others. So I think that knowledge will be presented to us to help us make smarter decisions and engage in more human ways. So optimistic as well as yep. empowering, I hope. Like it. I like the reference to that uh, classic Hollywood film, Minority Report, as well. If anyone <laughs> hasn't seen it, starring Tom Cruise. And um, I kind of feel like what you said there is like a little bit like Alexa, like automating all these resources, like, you know, at the desk when someone's got a question they ask it and it's there when they need it. Is that kind of, would I, you say? Yeah, I think that, that Alexa is a very primitive tool that in the next 20 years, whether it be voice recognition or whether um, rather than, because again, it's Alexa is still a very pull thing. Yeah. And I think that, um, that, that guidance and support systems are going to be much more anticipatory yeah. of our needs and at the times they are actually needed. So it's not going to be about education well in advance of situation occurring. And it's not going to be retrospective either, as in, you know, you've been a manager for yeah. a year and here's some useful stuff. We're going to get so close to the point of need. And then the mixed reality, I think, is not just going to be about learning and performance and capability building. It's all going to be ingrained into the flow of work Absolutely. so that we are reducing our own cognitive load. We are literally just becoming the very best versions of of what humans can bring to any operation now don't get me wrong there are going to be there is going to be a distinction between uh high value knowledge work and then lower lower paid work and yeah. i think that there is a dark side to to the the more manual work that i heard on a bbc podcast where people are wear helmets like if cleaners are like wear helmets and then they're told where to clean and what to clean right. by the AI, by the robot. Wow. Okay. So you're working for the technology. And that's because the labour is cheaper than a robot. And that, I think, is a very dystopian view. Interesting. And hope, you know, so that, that doesn't come to being. No, absolutely not. Okay, great. Um, so we're moving on to our last section. It's quick fire questions. I don't know if I need to um, speak faster with these ones, <laughs> uh, but I'm going to go for it. Rob Moores, once again. Uh, has asked the question, has the time come to abandon the traditional LMS and LNA, TNA, as they tend to serve what L&D want to deliver rather than what the business needs? Short answer is yes. I don't think we need to look for learning needs, as I explained before. We should address business performance needs in the context in which they're experienced. The LMS has become a brainless buy-in decision, in my opinion, based on the flawed premise that education is required to address performance needs, and I think that's wrong. Okay, Mars Runham, next question. What one piece of advice would you give to someone who is starting out on a new project or initiative? And if I can steal a second, what do you wish you were told before you started your last job, project or initiative? Right, so 
The first question I'd say the advice I'd give to somebody starting out on a new project is spend the time up front gathering data to understand what the real problem is as best you possibly can. Look at business information and look at what it means for the main actors from their perspective. So speaking with them, uh, walking a mile in their own shoes and don't do anything. And you can, you, I suppose, until you completely understand both, um, both the BI and um, the actor's perspective. Now, the second part, which is uh, what do I wish I was told before starting my last project or initiative? And I'm going to go back to my Disney days. I'm going to say, I wish I was told that I should expect more from learning technology and not just accept something that people hated and I avoided using at all costs. Okay, excellent. Next question. Um, how do you explain our profession to friends in a sentence? <laughs> I've actually been told not to by my wife. Oh, really? <laughs> because, because, because as soon as I've had a drink and I might be at a party, right. I just go off on one. But, but I was sober when I came up with this answer. So what I do is I compare and contrast. And I say, you know your company training and e-learning? Well, I make that work better for you, giving you what you need when you need it to do the best job you possibly can in your current job and in any future roles. I'd have a slightly different frame if I was talking to a business owner, but Excellent. that's in a nutshell. Okay. I'm glad you've given me that answer because I'm going to steal that. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> uh, Marash um, Romani has come up with the last uh, of our quick fire questions, and it is, is it inevitable that organisations will have to switch from learning management systems to learning experience platforms in the near future to foster workplace learning? Okay, Mahesh, um, short answer is no. I think the terms and products still muddy the water. I hope it's inevitable that L&D become more outcome focused, more digitally savvy and ju judicious over the tech we introduce into our organisations. Excellent. Thank you, David. And that's it. Yes. All those questions. Wow. Done well. Yeah, thank you very much. You did well as well. Thank, thank you, you very man. much. Thanks, Adam. I enjoyed both preparing and discussing my responses to those questions. I would like to thank everybody who submitted questions. We couldn't get through them all, but I really appreciate everyone that posted. Perhaps we'll do this again soon. I'd also like to thank Adam as well for taking the time out of his day to be part of this podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest more topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning connect on LinkedIn or Facebook, for which you'll find the links in the show notes. Goodbye for now.